Let's return to our series through Genesis this morning by going to Genesis chapter 3. I felt like we had a great missions conference, and I hope you were challenged to give towards missions. Just allow the Lord to lay lay an amount upon you and then be faithful to give that. And you'll be laying up treasures in heaven as you do. So we're in chapter 3 of Genesis, and this is where it all went wrong. This is the whole reason why we have missions to begin with. Because of what took place here in Genesis chapter 3. Sin has now entered God's perfect creation because our first parents decided they would live apart from God's command in an attempt to become their own gods. Now, by the way, don't think you would have done any better. They were perfect. We're not even born perfect. So we couldn't have done any better than they did. But now all of humanity has inherited Adam's sin nature and therefore all of humanity needs a Savior. We covered last time that we are born sinners in the first Adam, but how we can be born again in the last Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15.45, And so it is written, The first man Adam was made a living soul, And the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. So I hope you know the last Adam today. Amen. Let's begin today by reading verses uh, 1 through 8. As we have been doing here in this section, the Bible says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Well, we've made it through verse 6 so far in this chapter. We're going to pick up in verse 7, but before we do, I just want to remind us of some things to get us back in the, the mindset here of what we're looking at since we had a week off. Satan, he came on the scene using his subtlety to deceive Eve. He questioned God and His Word to her, He lied to her about what the consequences of his temptation would be. He said, you're not going to die when God clearly said, ye shall surely die. And as a result of Satan's craftiness, in verse 6, Eve saw the tree that it was good for food. She saw that it was pleasant to the eyes and she desired it to make her wise. 1 John 2.16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh... That's when she perceived it was good for food. The lust of the eyes, that's when she saw it was pleasant to look upon with her eyes. And the pride of life, that's when she desired it to make her wise. 
John wrote, it's not of the Father, but it's of the world. So all of our temptations are rooted in one of those three areas. Then after Eve partook, she gave to Adam and he did eat. The Bible is clear that Adam was not deceived as Eve was. And I personally don't believe we need to try to find a noble reason why Adam ate of the tree like some do. Because no matter what, he just openly rebelled against God. You can try to fantasize that he just loved his wife and he just didn't want her to suffer alone. You can do that if you want, but the Bible never says any of that. But the Bible does say this in James 1, 14 and 15. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So what was Adam's problem? He wasn't deceived. Well, he was just drawn away of his own lust. Amen. That's what the Bible says. So this is our sixth week in this chapter, and I have no time to recap all that we've covered so far, but you may recall that I suggested that the pride of life was their biggest temptation. I say that because they already had trees that were good for food. They already had trees that were pleasant to the eyes, but only this one tree was offered to make them wise. And this was the tree that Satan said, you can be as God's. And when they decided God didn't know what was best. Did you hear that? When they decided God didn't know what was best, but that they knew what was best, they both ate. And we see in verse 7 that when they did, the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. What happened to them? I believe pride got the better of them. It was pride that led them to believe they could be as gods. It was pride that made them believe that God's Word may say that, but it's not going to be true to me. I'll be the one who gets away with it. It was pride that caused them to take of this tree and now they know good from evil. Now, things are going to enter their minds, their hearts, they never even knew of. Things are going to change drastically, all because they thought they knew what was best. Remember that Satan himself fell after he said in his heart, I will be like the Most High. What was Satan's downfall? It was his pride. And so he used that because it worked on him. He uses that on Adam and Eve. And they too believed they could be gods as well. And so pride was their downfall as well. And now, here's two prideful people who once were without sin and not ashamed. But now in their sin, their eyes have been opened. They now are naked. They know that they are naked. And they are ashamed. Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride cometh, then cometh shame. Proverbs 16.8, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 29.23, A man's pride shall bring him low. And as a result of their sinful shame, they hid themselves from the presence of God in verse 8. Their walk with God has now been severed. They're at odds with God. Proverbs 13.10 tells us only by pride cometh contention. 
And what do prideful people try and do? They try and fix their problems themselves. I know I'm in a mess. I know I've messed up. I've sinned against God. But I'm going to see if I can't get myself out of this. And so what prideful people do is they try to solve their own problems. Instead of Adam and Eve going to God, they're attempting to solve their sinful problem themselves. And they make aprons out of fig leaves to cover their nakedness. Now who told them they were naked? There's not even anybody there to tell them. Who, who told them this? No one did. Then how is it that they became aware all of a sudden that they're in this state? It's because of sin. I know this is deep, but sin makes us aware that we are sinners. It makes us aware. I want to give you just a brief side note here. But for this reason, I think there's merit to the idea that once a child begins to understand they're naked, they are becoming awakened to sin in their life. I'm not saying it's the test, but it is definitely an indicator. To my knowledge, every child is born into this world naked. I suppose some of the fighting fundamentalists of the 20th century were born with suits on, But I'm pretty sure they were also born... All right, I couldn't resist. (laughs) Job said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb. And all that have been born have had no concept early on in life that they're naked. Even as they begin to walk, they typically still have no concept of of the idea of being ashamed of their nakedness. A toddler will run around naked as a jaybird if you let it. But something begins to happen in a child's life. I'll just throw out maybe somewhere between three and four. And all of a sudden, that child who once had no shame now begins to have shame about their nakedness. I can remember when our daughter was going to be a flower girl at a wedding, and she was about six years old. And she was, the dress that they had for her was a sleeveless dress. I personally don't think there's anything wrong with that, but to her, she's not in here, is she? Oh, good. This is perfect. Um, She's in the nursery, amen. She still hasn't grown up. She just felt so uncomfortable in that dress. I never told her it was wrong. I never even suggested. I don't even know where she got the idea from. But here she was as a little girl, and she's wearing this dress, and she's very uncomfortable. It's not even like it was a spaghetti strap kind of a thing. And and don't worry, I'm not trying to shape your dress standards this morning, okay? Everybody starts getting nervous. The priest's going to tell me I can't wear pants. Um. So we had to buy one of those sweater thingies. I don't know what women call these things. A sweater? <laughs> shrug? Yeah, see, what is a shrug? That's a shrug, amen. I, I, don't, I don't know how you wear a shrug, but all right. Um, so we were able to get that approved and, and get her to wear that to help cover her embarrassment. Um, but nobody told her to be that way. 
And, and I think at that point, when, when a parent begins to realize their child has some sort of embarrassment, it's now time for you to double your efforts in giving them Christ. And once you start that process, listen, you can't stop. It's a lifetime thing. Do it for the rest of their lives. But, you know, based upon how many people are choosing to appear in public, somewhere along the line, people grow cold to, once, to what they were once awakened to. And instead of covering up, they now want to show as much skin and curves as possible. And ladies, guys are going to look. What changes? People become comfortable in their sin. They become hardened to sin and they lose their shame. They become prideful believing they have something that all the rest of the world wants to see. My filter is kicking in and I was going to say, okay, my wife said no. So back to our text. Here are two people, a husband and a wife no less, and they are ashamed of their nakedness, and yet no one had to tell them they were naked. In fact, even God will ask in verse 11, Who told thee that thou was naked? How did they come to this conclusion on their own? Their conscience had become awakened to sin. You see, God puts something within every one of us. God places something in each and every one of us that makes us realize that what we are doing is wrong. What is it? Our conscience has become awakened to sin. And we know deep down that this isn't right. Before God ever showed up, Adam and Eve's conscience began to convict them that something was wrong. Therefore, they knew they were naked without ever having to be told. For this cause, even godless pagans in their cultures have some semblance of law and order. It may be a perverted misrepresentation according to the Bible, but they have rules in place. Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these, having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another." This is why even godless societies have a system of right and wrong. They punish thieves. They frown upon covetousness. They don't like it when their spouse commits adultery. They don't like liars. They punish murderers. They generally will honor their parents. There's usually a leader, a chief, elders, who enforce their systems of law which is derived from their conscience, which bears witness to the work of the law written in their hearts. In Genesis chapter 12, Abram decides to go to Egypt and he told his wife, Sarai, he said, you tell them you're my sister. He was more concerned about his own skin. That's a whole other lesson. Well, the Pharaoh there was going to take Sarai and, and make her his wife. But God plagued Pharaoh during that time and his house and a pagan Pharaoh 
stood up to Abram and said, why didn't you tell me? Why was it that a pagan man didn't like to be lied to? Why was it that a pagan man wasn't going to take another man's wife to be his wife? You want to know why? His conscience was awakened to right and wrong. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul addresses a situation where a man was going to have or did have his father's wife, and, or a son had his father's wife. And Paul said, such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles. In other words, even the non-believers won't do that. Why wasn't it even named among the Gentiles? Because our conscience says this is not right. In John chapter 8, it's the account of the woman taken in adultery. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they want Jesus to say she needs to be stoned to death. And Jesus, if you remember the account, He stoops down and He begins to ride on the, uh, uh, in the sand there with His finger. In John 8 9, it says, And they which heard it, interesting they heard what He was writing without talking. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Their own conscience was bearing witness against them that they were guilty sinners too. And just as soon as Adam and Eve had sinned, their eyes were opened and they knew they were naked. It was the work of the law written in their hearts to convict them of sin. Likewise, there comes a point where even a child doesn't have to be told they're naked. But they know because they are becoming awakened to sin and the work of the law that is written upon their hearts. And listen to me now. There isn't a soul here today that is above the age of accountability. You say, what's that? When they do become awakened to sin. There isn't a soul here today who doesn't know they're a sinner. Not one. Sure, you may look at it and say, well, I'm not really sinning against God. You may look at it and think, well, it's not that bad. and You don't understand the enormity of your crime against God. But you know deep down you've done wrong. You're aware of that. I'll guarantee it. And just like Adam and Eve, your eyes have become open to sin. You know the difference between good and evil. And that's why you're dressed today. That's why you know it's wrong to steal. That's why you know it's wrong to hit and run. That's why you know it's wrong to murder, to cheat, to lie, to cuss, to find loopholes. And that's why you don't like being taken advantage of. This is why bank robbers wear masks. This is why most crime happens in the dark of night. This is why people will run from the law. This is why your foot instinctively comes off the gas pedal when the cop is behind you. Oh, I wasn't, I wasn't even speeding. This is why adulterers sneak around. This is why you clean your internet history. Because you know what you're doing 
is wrong. Listen, this is good preaching. Some of you need to pay attention. I could go on and on with the examples. And we know all of these things to be true because there's a law that's been awakened in our own conscience that testifies against us that we are doing wrong. So here's the question this morning. What do we do with sin when it has become known? How do we deal with sin? What do you do when your conscience begins to testify against you? Well, let's look at what Adam and Eve did in verse 7. The eyes of them both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. They are attempting to deal with their sinfulness on their own. Why? Because that's what prideful people do. They try to deal with it on their own. And this is what we call man-made religion. Now, the one Sunday that I'm preaching on this, Brother DeGarmo decided to teach on James 1.27 about pure religion and undefiled before God is to visit the widows and the fatherless in their affliction. That's the only time in the Bible religion is ever used in a good context. And so when I say religion today, I'm talking about man-made religion. You say, what's that? I probably don't even have to tell you, but you can figure it out, right? The major world religions. Those, let me just sum it up this way so I try not to be as, as offensive as I, I feel like being because I can feel it. If, you, if, if a religion teaches you have to add anything to Christ, it's a religion. And it is man-made. And it is from the pits of hell. They sow fig leaves together. Now their desire is right. But now that they are apart from God, due to their sin, they figure the only way I can solve my sin problem is going to be through my own efforts. That's how prideful people think they can deal with sin. The problem is religion has no place in Christianity. Hell is filled with religious people. Religion teaches that mankind has to fix themselves in order to earn their way into a right relationship with God. Isaiah 64, 6 says, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all of our righteousnesses, it doesn't even say our unrighteousness. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we do all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. God will never accept religion or our good works in order to be accepted in His sight. God will not accept fig leaf sowing. God will not accept our prideful attempts to reach Him on our own terms. You may be well-intentioned, but it will never make you righteous in God's sight. Now, here's what some religions do. They'll tell you Christ does play a role, but you have to make up the gap. The Mormons teach you have to stay in their church. The Catholics teach you have to work, pray, and obey. 
Amen. Jehovah's Witness say you got to be baptized into our church. What's happening? They are saying Christ may have played a role. Well, Jehovah's Witnesses are nuts altogether. But they may say Christ played a role. But you're going to have to make up the difference. Because His death, His sacrifice, His blood really wasn't enough to save you. And so you've got to do your part if you want to be accepted before God. How do you ever quantify if you've been good enough? How would you ever know if you paid enough, prayed enough, obeyed enough? How are you ever going to know? The truth is you won't. And as a result, in religion, in man-made religion, there is never full assurance of salvation. You have to spend your whole days hoping that you'll make it in one day. And I just hope in that day when they bring out the scales, my good outweighs my bad, and then I'll be able to get in. I hope I sowed my fig leaves just right to cover up all of my shame. You know, Saul of Tarsus was such a religious man that he once considered himself blameless as touching the righteousness of the law. That's pretty religious. But he had a wake-up call on the road to Damascus. Whoop! And he discovered that no amount of religion could ever make him righteous in God's eyes. And so he wrote this in Philippians 3.9. And be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So if God doesn't accept our works, then what does God accept? If He doesn't accept our church membership, our baptism, our giving, our uh, works, what is it that God accepts? We'll jump ahead for just a minute. Look at verse 21. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Logically, how did God make them coats of skins? He had to make them from an animal, amen? So an animal had to be killed. Blood had to be shed. What will God accept as a sacrifice for sin then? He only accepts blood. In order to deal with their sin, things were going to have to get bloody. And there's no blood in those fig leaves. But what did that animal do wrong? Nothing. And that's the point. God had to take an innocent animal, kill it on the spot, take the skin from that animal to make them coverings. You see, God was not going to accept the fig leaf works that they had done to try to cover themselves. But God said, I'm going to have to clothe you. And if you won't receive my covering, then you cannot have a relationship with me. But wait a minute. The Bible is clear in Hebrews 10.14, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Therefore, what is taking place here is only a picture of something better to come. Better stated would be, it's a picture of someone better to come. 
And then sure enough, one day, some 4,000 years later from our text, John the Baptist will see Jesus coming towards him. And John will say in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Christ stepped into our place and became our sacrifice. He took the punishment of God that we all deserved so that we might could be right with God. And if you're putting this together, God had to kill the innocent animal in Genesis 3. Get this now. God would have to kill the innocent lamb. Jesus Christ. Yeah, I get it. I know. I get it. I know you don't want to pay attention because now I'm getting up in your living room and you're not saved. And it's bugging you. And I'm telling you that God said, I will be your sacrifice. In Genesis 22, God told Abram, go up and offer your son Isaac. And the Bible says, uh, you know, Isaac looks at Abraham, his father, and he says, you know, where's the sacrifice? Abraham says, son, my uh, God will provide himself. Did you know the NIV takes that word out? Changes the whole meaning of the text. God said, I will provide myself as the sacrifice. Christ did what we could not do. But what did Jesus do wrong? Nothing. He was innocent. He did no wrong. He was sinless and yet He would still be our perfect sacrifice. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5 in verse 10 say, Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. He hath put Him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Christ took the wrath of God in our place. He took the punishment we deserve. 1 Corinthians 5.7 says, For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. And listen to me, this is true Christianity. Not that which says you got to be faithful to the church. Not that that says you got to be baptized. Not that that says you got to work enough. Not that says you got to make sure you give enough. But true Christianity is when you realize Jesus Christ paid it all. Amen. Genesis 3.21 then is a picture of transferred righteousness. It is the grace of God and it's the only way to be right with God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For He, God, hath made Him Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Now, i got to ask you, why won't more people embrace that? Why won't people embrace the idea that Jesus paid it all and that all we have to do is place our faith and trust in Him? Why are people seeking to close a gap that doesn't exist? 
Why are people saying I've got to be faithful to the church? Why are people saying I've got to give? Why are people saying I've got to be baptized? Why are people saying I've got to work and I've got to give and I've got to do all these things when the Bible is so clear that there is one way and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ and yet people are saying, no, I've got to do more. It can't be that easy. Why is that the case? Why won't more people just take God at His Word and say, Lord, I want Your free salvation. I trust You that You've done it all. I tell you what people do. They get in the mindset and they got the work-reward mentality. If I do good at school, I'll be rewarded. If I do good on the job, I'll be rewarded. Surely salvation can't be that simple that all i got to do is believe. Paul said this, but I, I hope that through the subtlety of Satan that the simplicity of Christ hasn't been corrupted. I'm paraphrasing. It is so simple and yet we want to add to it. And people don't embrace it. But God says you either come to me through my son or you don't get to come at all. How does one do this? It's by grace through faith in Christ's finished work. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. You see, you can't boast when you come to God through Christ. But in religion, you can boast. In religion, you can say, I've been faithful to my church. I've been faithful to give. I've been faithful to work. God, you know I closed the gap that you weren't strong enough or powerful enough to close. It is such pride. But you can't boast when you come through Christ because when we come through Christ, He did it all. Faith in Christ will remove your pride and your part of salvation. It's a free gift. God only will accept the blood of Christ for the remission of your sins and nothing else. I knew we were in trouble when I didn't get to preach last week. Listen, the fact of the matter is most people are stuck in verse 7. They're trying to fix themselves. Even in churches like ours. I guess I better go to church so I can be pleasing to God. But our righteousness can only be the righteousness of Christ or it is no righteousness at all. Therefore, it is all by grace, none by works. Let me prove that to you. Romans eleven six. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. And so I'm curious today, please be honest, would you just swallow your pride today? Is there anybody stuck in verse 7? And you know deep down in your heart of hearts, your, your conscience has been awakened to sin and you realize, yeah, Christ may have died on the cross, but I still feel like there's something I've got to bring to the table. Is there anybody like that? Is there anybody who believes that your justification, your final justification rests upon how well you, you were bearing fruit? That's being taught in so-called Bible-believing churches. It's the doctrine of final justification, and it's pitiful that it's being taught by men like John Piper. That somehow you're not really saved until you get to the very end, and then you'll find out whether or not your works were good enough. Is there anyone here that are, you're still sowing fig leaves together? Spoiler alert. You can be a Baptist and still be lost. How do you know that? Because I was one. I was a lost Baptist kid. I was in the Baptist religion, if you will. Christ washed me in His precious blood. 
And now I know that Christ is my only plea. Can you imagine when you stand before God on the judgment and you're asked, on what merit are you standing before me today? I wonder what you'll say. Well, God, I tried. I gave it my best. You know I was faithful to church when I felt like it. I mean, I gave when the, I was emotionally stirred. When you stand before God, the only merit that we have is Jesus Christ. Amen. He's our only plea. J.L. Baker wrote this hymn, My Plea. Should I at the gates of heaven appear to answer the challenge, What claim hast thou here? What hast thou to offer? Yea, what is thy plea? With blessed assurance my answer will be, All that I have is Jesus. All that I claim is Jesus. All that I want, all that I need, all that I plead is Jesus. Of all earthly treasures nothing I've brought. No great deeds of merit have I ever wrought. Though vile and unworthy as mortal could be, I have nothing to offer, but this is my plea. All that I have is Jesus. All that I claim is Jesus. All that I want, all that I need, all that I plead is Jesus. My sins, they are many. My virtues are, are few. The blood of my Savior will carry me through. When Christ in my place died on Calvary's tree, hallelujah, that opened God's heaven to me. All that I have is Jesus. All that I claim is Jesus. All that I want, all that I need, all that I plead is Jesus. Is that your plea today? Listen, I'm begging with you to stop hanging on to your pride. I just don't know what people are going to think about me. They're going to rejoice. Jesus couldn't have been any more plainer when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Some through the water, some through the flood, some through the fire, but all through the blood. Listen, if you're still in verse 7, will you shake off your pride this morning and put your faith in Christ alone? Let's pray.